Uh, we are in week five of our series, Kingdom in Conflict, Kingdoms in Conflict, looking at the kingdoms of man and God and how they differ and how they're in stark contrast to one another and ultimately into which kingdom we should be putting our trust. Now, I think we know the answer that this series is pointing to, hopefully you do, but we keep working through it because even though we know the answer, we so often find ourselves doing the opposite of what we know we should do. And we find ourselves dealing with the mess that comes as a result. Now, before we get into our passage, I do want to read one verse from the middle of it. I'm going to give away the ending of this sermon right now. And the reason I'm going to do so is that I want us to have this in mind as we read through this passage. Because it's very easy to get distracted when we get into narratives like this. It's a long passage, and I want us to keep focused on this idea as we go. So you ready? Head with me to verse 17 of Daniel chapter 4. We're told in verse 17 that all that takes place in this chapter is happening to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Again, in case you got a text while I was reading that, what we're about to read is all happening to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That is the reason that all of this is going to happen today. That is what God wants to show Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, Babylon, and his beloved chosen people, Israel. The idea that he rules the kingdom of men. He is in charge. He is sovereign, regardless of the circumstances. And the Israelites living in Daniel's day, they would have been pretty uncertain about God's sovereignty. See, Israel had been conquered by Babylon, right? By Nebuchadnezzar. And many of the Jews had been exiled to Babylon, left to wonder, where is God and what is he doing? Daniel chapter 4 picks up about 20 years after God's dramatic rescuing of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't believe you guys thought it was Abednego. That's ridiculous. Uh, we're 20 years after the fiery furnace and Things, as we'll see shortly, seem to be going pretty well in Babylon. And then verse 1 of chapter 4 surprises us with a, with a sudden change of person, a change in narrator. Up until now, Daniel has been retelling these accounts in the third person. But here in chapter 4, and it's the only time it happens in this book, perspective changes from Daniel to a first-person account from King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And while much of what we read has a very direct application to a very specific group of people, to a very specific person, we're going to keep verse 17 in mind. And remember that this account is here to the end that all living things may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So with that, Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read this. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages... That dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, what we're reading here is likely a letter or a decree of sorts from King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the ruler of the known world, the king of all the earth, and he's writing to all people, nations, and languages. And this is important. If you were here last week, you'll remember Lee reading that when the trumpet 
or the lyre or the harp or the ligon played. Something was supposed to happen. People were to bow down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up of himself. Now, who? What people? Who was supposed to bow? Chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who drove all people, nations, and languages to worship someone other than the Most High God. And now that he knows what he knows, he's correcting that mistake. He's taking time to show all people, nations, and languages that someone much greater than himself was worthy of their worship. He's going to tell the people what happened to him, what God did to him, what great signs and wonders God has done for him, so that, again, all people, nations, and languages may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. We're going to burn that into your minds this morning. You're going to hear it a lot. But let's move on to the rest of our passage. We're going to read it in chunks this morning. It's pretty long. Um, We'll make a few observations, and I'll toss out a few points that you can write down because some of you... Uh, need those numbered points. So let's jump back into verses four through seven. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So at the start of our passage, the king is doing pretty great, and then he's given a dream that makes him afraid. It alarms him. So he goes to his most trusted source on dream interpretation, the magicians, the enchanters, and the astrologers. The ones who, when asked to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2, said, "'There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand.'" For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. No one can do it. The guys who said, sorry, king, we can't interpret your dream, that's who he went to. And now this is a bit of an aside. As much as I want to poke fun at Nebuchadnezzar for this, it's exactly what we do regularly, right? Instead of going where we know we'll find answers, for Christians, it's to the throne of grace, as the writer of Hebrews says, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To turn off my microphone in the house, if that would be possible. So instead, we turn to busyness. Instead of going to the throne of grace for help in time of need, We go to social media. We go to entertainment, shortcuts. Maybe some of you turn to things like the magic eight ball or horoscopes or even psychics or seances. Hebrews 4 reminds us that we have answers, mercy, grace to help. We know where to look for these things, but for one reason or another, we choose to look elsewhere. It is the definition of insanity, but it's what we do and it's what Nebuchadnezzar did. 
And when that doesn't work, he seeks help from the one who actually did pull this off in the past. Verse eight, at last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And here's our key verse again, verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream... I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. There's a lot there. Um, we are not going to spend a bunch of time looking into the details of the dream, which is going to disappoint you a lot. Like, what is a watcher? Right? You're probably asking that question. We're not getting there today. We'll leave that for another time, and mostly because Daniel does a pretty good job of explaining this dream to us shortly, but also because this passage isn't about the imagery. The vision was a tool that God used to warn Nebuchadnezzar, to give him time to repent, to discipline him and restore him and show Nebuchadnezzar and all those watching that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So God reveals the meaning of this dream that upset Nebuchadnezzar so and Daniel shares the interpretation with the king. He says this in verses 19 through 26. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and not for you. The tree that you saw, and then he recounts the description of the tree. The tree that you saw, verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven, and then he recounts what the watcher told him. And then in verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord pardon me, my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men 
and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until, and here's another moment with our key thought for the day, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. If you're taking notes today and want to have some numbered points, we can start out with this one today. God lovingly warns. God lovingly warns. Now, the warning part of this point is pretty straightforward, right? You know, the bad thing is going to happen, but what about the lovingly? Do you see it in there? See, when Daniel responds, he is troubled by what he hears. He knows it's declaring the downfall of this king, and as he relays it to the king, he reflects God's character with kindness and love. And he says, oh, king, I wish this was for someone else, not you. Psalm 103 verse 8 says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's true for Nebuchadnezzar and us. God sees our sin and lovingly warns us to turn from it. He does. He does this all the time. And as much as Nebuchadnezzar was this pagan king, right, he was still created in the image of God and was loved by him. And with that love and mercy, he warns the king in a dream and provides a messenger to interpret the dream. Nebuchadnezzar has shown that he would become great, a world power that everyone and everything has now looked to him for their ease and prosperity. And then he is warned that a time is coming when a watcher, an angel maybe, a holy one will take his kingdom from him. He's told he'll lose his mental health and will live outside like a beast for seven periods of time. Now, we don't know exactly how long that period of time is, weeks, months, years maybe, but we're told later that it's long enough for his hair to grow long and his nails to grow out like claws. For Israel, the number seven represents completion or perfection. So regardless of how long it actually was, we know that it was the right amount of time. And the right amount of time is as long as it takes for Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge our key idea for this morning that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's how long it's going to take. And also he's He's told that it's not a permanent displacement. The fact that the watcher says to leave the stump and protect it with iron and bronze says that at the end of the time, Nebuchadnezzar would be restored to power. Now, as significant and dark as this warning is, the fact that it's a warning at all is loving and gracious. God didn't have to send a warning. He was well within his rights to send fire from heaven and destroy Babylon. But here he lovingly warns. But what about us? Like that was for Nebuchadnezzar. He got a dream. From where do we get our loving warnings? Dreams? Visions? Maybe? That's not the, the shared experience for a lot of Christians. Do you ever wish that your warnings came like that though? Maybe not all the darkness, but wouldn't it be nice to get something vivid and something specific? Many of us have probably thought at one time or another how great it would be if God would just give us a sign, right? An obvious, specific sign. Maybe an audible voice. 
maybe a vision like the one that Nebuchadnezzar is given, then, then I would change my ways. Then I would know what to do. But he does warn us. And it's important for us to recognize the ways that he uses to pass along these warnings in our lives. Look, if you're a believer, he's given you his spirit. God's spirit lives inside of you. One of the spirit's jobs is to convict you of your sin and warn you to turn from it. God also puts people into our life, parents, friends, coworkers, sometimes random strangers into our life with warnings. We have God's word. We have pastors who open up God's word each week. We have teachers teaching us how to study God's word so that we can read it and know what to do with what we read. That's awesome. Dale Ralph Davis said this, it's a huge gift when the God of heaven clearly makes known his word, even his severe word to you. It may come through the pastor of your church who labors hard in the study and preaching of the word. You may or may not have a close personal relationship with him. You may even dislike some things about him. But if he seeks to lay bare the word of God for your good week by week, you have been given a huge gift. And sometimes, of course, there is no human vessel at all, but the Holy Spirit himself speaking to you in the scriptures and exposing and decimating your pride. Now, I know it's a bit self-serving for a pastor to get up here and tell you what a gift you have in his opening of God's word to you. But really, how great is it? I'm not up here all the time. I, like you, am the beneficiary of regular faithful teaching from God's word. Look, we don't need to wait for a vision in his great love, as an act of grace, God has given us his word and his spirit and his people to pass along the warning that there are serious consequences for unrepentant sin, and there are. What's he been warning you about lately? I mean, if we go back to our last few sermons, we can see that God has been warning us to put our hope in the kingdom of God instead of that of man, to not just give in to the ways of the world, to the thinking of the world, to not trust the things of the world to bring us joy in life, but that's just Sundays. What is he been warning you about in your own personal time in his word? What has the Holy Spirit been convicting you about through the day? What have your godly friends been saying to you? And right now, if, a, if, a, if something comes to mind, if a warning comes to mind that you've been given, maybe write it down. Tell a friend about this, a trusted friend. Ask for some accountability. Develop a plan to deal with the warning. Recognize it for the gift that it is. And act on it. Don't wait. Or maybe you were sitting there and you're feeling like he hasn't been warning you about anything. Have you been paying attention during the sermon time on Sundays? Have you been reading your Bible? Have you been listening to the Spirit? Are you listening to your godly friends? Because God warns us. We don't like the sound of that word, though, do we? It's super negative sounding. Sometimes we sugarcoat it a little bit and use words like reminder. Like, this is a reminder that we shouldn't live this way. But really, it's a warning, isn't it? This series has been and will continue to be a warning to us. We don't like to think about things in that negative way. But let's be honest, sometimes we need that negativity because we forget that there are consequences for sin. Yes, in Jesus, as Christians, we have forgiveness of sin. We should and do celebrate this all the time, but that doesn't mean that we should continue in sin. 
And it certainly doesn't mean that we are free from the consequences of that sin. An unrepentant sin, as we'll see later in our passage, as we've seen in so many other passages, and as we'll continue to see in our own lives and the lives of those around us, unrepentant sin has consequences and sometimes severe ones. So God lovingly warns us of coming disaster. And what are we supposed to do with these warnings? I think you know, but if you're not sure, we do get a pretty clear answer in Daniel's suggested response to God's warning to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at what he says there in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. God lovingly warns, and he also patiently gives us opportunity to repent. He does. He is so patient. He warns, he convicts, and then he gives us space and time to turn from our sin and turn to him. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, if you repent, if you turn from your wicked ways, maybe God will relent. Maybe this vision won't come to be. In 1 Kings, Ahab, the king of Samaria, and his wife Jezebel, they had a man killed so they could have his vineyard for a garden. So God sent a pretty intense and graphic warning to Ahab through the prophet Elijah. Ahab sees his sin and repents. He humbles himself before God, and God relents. He doesn't kill him. Later, God sends Jonah to warn the city of Nineveh that he's going to destroy the city because of their sin. And when they finally hear God's warning, they repent. Everyone calls out mightily to God, the Bible says. And in response, we read this in Jonah 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to him or to them, and he did not do it. The people repented, and God relented. He gave them time to repent. But if you read the book of Jonah, you'll notice that there is a deadline that God had in mind. He does have a limit on his patience. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, how many of you quote the bit about a day being as a thousand years and vice versa? to talk about how we just have to wait on God's promises for everything to work out on his timing. And while waiting on his promises of deliverance is something we should certainly do, and he's good to follow through on those promises, that's not what Peter is saying in this passage at all. We see here that while he patiently gives us opportunity to repent, the time will come when his judgment, his wrath will be poured out. You can't wait forever. If Nineveh had continued in wickedness, God would have wiped them out. If Ahab hadn't repented, there would have been blood. And if Nebuchadnezzar had repented, maybe, Daniel says, maybe God will relent. 
But if you know this story, you know that that's not what happens. How did Nebuchadnezzar respond to God's warning, to Daniel's plea for repentance? Well, we get a pretty clear idea in verse 28 when we read, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. It happened. The warning wasn't for another king, and time ran out. All that he had been warned about in his dream happens, which gives us our third point, which is that God faithfully follows through. He follows through, doesn't he? And he's right to do so. So what happens? Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, I love this, while he was still speaking these words, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, until he knows what? Have you memorized it yet? Until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Oh, it happened just like the dream. Now a full year had passed from the time of Daniel's plea to the king to repent. He's on his rooftop and he looks out over his kingdom and is filled with pride he still thinks that he is God. Remember, not long ago, he demanded on pain of death that everyone in the world worship him. Look, there's a great contrasting parallel. I, Sean's here, he's an English teacher. I don't know if there is such a thing as a contrasting parallel, but I like it. When we see Satan taking Jesus up on a mountain and tells him he will give him all the kingdoms of the world if he would simply bow down and worship Satan. And Jesus replies in Matthew 4, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Only God is great and worthy of our worship. But God himself tells us that he's a jealous God, not willing to share in his glory. Isaiah 42 says, that I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Only God is great and worthy of our worship. Nebuchadnezzar's rule, as great as it was, was given to him by the great God. Everything he had was given to him. And while we're at it, it's important to remember that everything we have is given to us. Brian Chappell had a great little saying when he was writing about this passage, when he said, God gives, we do not gain, right? We don't get that ourselves. God gives. God gives, we do not gain. Everything that we have, breath, relationships, possessions, fame, legacy, authority, it all comes from God. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And here we have Nebuchadnezzar surveying the land. And he says, after having been warned already, 
Look what I've accomplished. Look at my kingdom. He may as well have said, the most high Nebuchadnezzar rules the kingdom of men. And at that point, God's patience ran out. And while he was still speaking, a voice from heaven said, remember that dream? Here it is. You're done as king and will live like a beast until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. What a feeling that must have been. It points my mind to when Jesus warned Peter that he would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. Peter aggressively disagreed. We all know he went on to deny Jesus three times and then he heard the rooster crow. Ah, what that must have felt like. Have you ever experienced something like that? Like, have you maybe ignored a warning from Scripture or the Holy Spirit or a friend and continued on in sin, and then the stuff hits the fan and you just realize, no, I was warned. I had a chance. Hear me out. As dark as that time can be, when that happens, that moment of realization is grace. God's faithfulness to his promises, both those to uh, bless and those to discipline, those promises are grace. Because there's a difference between discipline and punishment, right? Because punishment, we know, comes as a result of sin. And the purpose of punishment is payment, paying for what you've done. You did something bad, something bad happens to you. It's transactional, it's cause and effect. And we're told in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die as payment for our sin, but believer, Jesus died for you on your behalf. Our sin requires punishment, death. Because of our sin, we were already dead, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Grace, it's grace. God had to punish sin, so he took the punishment on himself. Crossridge, if you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, the punishment for your sin has already been doled out. Jesus willingly offered himself to be punished for our sin. Now listen, I've talked to lots of Christians who feel like their bad situation is God's punishment on their life for their sin. They can trace their plight back to an event or a choice or some specific sin in their life and they're now suffering the consequences. Maybe you feel like that this morning. But you have to know, for the Christian, this isn't punishment. This is God's grace in your life. For one thing, God's discipline can be proof that you are indeed one of his children. Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God disciplines the ones he loves. But why? Discipline hurts, right? Why would a loving father hurt, and I use those air quotes on purpose, why would, why would he hurt his children? 
Hebrews 12 goes on to say, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Punishment is a transactional finality. You sin, you pay for it. Discipline is a rerouting, a way of God directing your focus back to him to turn you from the things that will really wreck you towards this peaceful fruit of righteousness, which sounds better than being wrecked. In our passage today, Nebuchadnezzar has his mental health removed from him. He's driven from the kingdom and lives out under the stars as a beast. It's brutal. And Nebuchadnezzar has all this going on before Jesus died on the cross. Look, it was not unusual in the Old Testament for God to pour out his final punishment on a person or a city or a nation for their sin. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah and Canaan. Nebuchadnezzar's story could have ended with, and you will be made to live as an ox. But it didn't end that way. How did it end? He would be made to live as an ox until, until what? You know it now. Until he knew that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This was discipline, a gift of grace that God gives. He lovingly warns, he gives opportunity for repentance, he faithfully follows through on his positive or negative promises. And in verse 34, we see that God graciously restores, and a caveat there, for his glory. Verse 34, at the end of days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, or probably more accurately, was returned to me. God gives, we do not gain. And I blessed the Most High, and I prayed and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God graciously restores for his glory. And I have to be honest, I struggled a bit with the wording of this point. I went with it because we're talking about a specific situation. A moment in history where God disciplined a specific person and then restored him to his former glory, and then some. That's what happened for Nebuchadnezzar. What about us, though? What about everyone else? What about the stories that we hear about the, you know, the disgraced pastor, the one who has some kind of a fall from grace, removed from his position? He lost his book deal, but then he repents. He accepts God's discipline and it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in his life. Does he get restored? Well, not when it comes to his status or his position. His wife may have left him. Nebuchadnezzar was established in his kingdom and still more greatness was added to him. Does that always happen? I think you have to agree that the answer is no. At least not in the way that it happened for Nebuchadnezzar. But what about that peaceful fruit of righteousness that we read about in 
Hebrews 12. When you are in or have endured a season of discipline and God has used it to change your heart, would you want to go back to how things were before? I trade what you've learned and how he's changed you for the glory of your former life. I, I don't know. Some of you, the answer might be yes, but those who have experienced it, you know the peaceful fruit of righteousness that is in your heart. Look, God might not give you back what he took away. That's his choice. He knows what you need. He knows what he wants to do with you. And if we really believe that he knows what's best for us, we should want this too. And ultimately, he wants to do all of this so that you and me and everyone around us, us will know that the most high rules, the kingdom of man, and gives it to whom he will. And he does this for his own glory. And that's what he does here in this passage. He gives back the kingdom of man to Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because it's his to give. And he's using Babylon for a purpose, to discipline the people of Israel and turn their hearts back to their God. He shows his great power over the greatest king in the world, and Israel needs to see that they weren't captured because God wasn't strong enough to fight off Nebuchadnezzar, that this was actually God's plan. Now, I'm certain they would have been tempted to forget what the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 27 of his book. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. That sounds familiar. Now I have given all of these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And what does he call him in there? My servant and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Look, God hasn't passively or mistakenly or impotently let Babylon conquer Israel. It was his doing. And his people needed reminding in this moment in exile that he was still in control. And for all of Nebuchadnezzar's faults, and they are many, God used him in an amazing way to show his power and make his glory shine across the entire known world. Nebuchadnezzar starts and ends this account, declaring to all people, nations, and languages that God's kingdom and dominion are from generation to generation and are eternal. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar, as dark as it was, drove him to worship God, to place worth in the right place, in the power and the majesty and the glory of the Most High. This is also what these examples from God's word and his warning and discipline in our own lives and the lives of others should do for us as well. God's loving warnings, his patience, his faithful discipline, his gracious restoration, they should all cause us to worship and to point us to our key point this morning, which is our final point this morning, which you've already heard a hundred times and can say along with me, and it's that God rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. 
This passage was not simply written so that you could learn to be a Daniel and speak hard truth to authorities or friends who need rebuking, although that's certainly not a bad thing to learn here. This passage was not just written as a warning that your sin would lead to discipline, although we should heed that warning today. This was a message from God the Father via a selfish, prideful pagan king to God's beloved people in exile. And the message was this, I'm still in control. I haven't forgotten you. God is telling them that this was part of his plan still to bless the entire world through them and ultimately show the world that he alone rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Do you know what this means for us today? I mean, there's a lot of applications that we can draw from here, but I'm going to harp on one for a second. If we believe this, and I know I'm opening a whole other can of worms that we do not have time to talk about today, but if the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, every ruler, every authority, presidents, prime ministers, dear leaders, dictators, they are in power because God put them there. And please hear me. This is not a political point. I am not picking sides here. Don't hear that. Are you worried that whatever party is in power is going to ruin your country? I mean, that could totally happen. Probably will. I mean, it happens all over the world time and time again. But are you living in fear? Are you raging with anger at what is going on? Guess what? The Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. Will there come a time when Christianity is outlawed in Canada? Maybe. Probably. But when it is, God himself will have put the people who make those decisions into a position where they can. He gives it to whom he will. It's already happened and continues to happen all over the world. Is God somehow less in control of North Korea than he is here? The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Walter Kaiser said this, and we're getting close here. We must learn to picture God as seated in his holy temple above the world scene with total understanding of what is going on and with total ability to steer the world in the strategic direction for his purposes to be fulfilled and for righteousness to be vindicated. Look, either God is completely sovereign or he's not. Which do you believe? And how does that belief affect your day-to-day -day life? Again, this is not a political statement. I am not telling you to sit back and let the government decide your life. I'm also not telling you to pick a fight and start a protest. I think there's a time and a place for both of those things, but that's not what this is about. The question I'm asking you is, do you believe that God is in control or don't you? If not, we can have a conversation about that. We can talk about it. That's something that can be hard to believe. I understand that. But if you do, and I hope you do, then you can trust Jesus when he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
And he has. And he has because the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And to whom has he given it most fully to? Matthew 28 tells us. Jesus came to them and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We do not need to fear. I know that's easier said than done. Exile in Babylon would have been rough. They were thrown into fire, fed to lions. Families were torn apart. And things could get ugly here in our lifetime. They could. But Jesus is still in control. He still has authority. Do you believe that? Because it makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you love us so much that you would warn us to turn from our sin, that you're patient with us and call us to repentance, that you fulfill your promises. And God, we acknowledge that you rule the kingdom of men and give it to whom you will, and we are so thankful that you have given it to Jesus. And we pray that that knowledge and our trust in it would give us peace, your peace, as you say, not peace that the world gives, we pray that our hearts wouldn't be troubled or afraid. We pray that you would continue to help us trust you, that you would give us the humility to turn from our sin and run to you, and that we would live our lives in such a way that your glory would be made known to all people, nations, and languages. And we pray that in your name. Amen.